Hello and welcome to Cross Street Coaching. I'm your host, Jason, from Hawthorne Union. This show is designed to be bite-sized information on personal growth, career, and leadership development, and professional coaching. All right, and we're back with another episode of Cross Street Coaching. And with me today is a very special guest, a good friend, Jen. Hi, I'm Jen Rebar. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Jen Rebar. And how do you like to be introduced? I just like to be called Jen. Just Jen. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Jen, why did you agree to talk to me today? Just Jen. Well, I am very curious about what you do, and I've listened to a couple of your podcasts, and I just wanted to see what I could do to chat with you, and yeah. Yeah, it's good to have you here today. So, you're in town. You have flown all the way, clearly just to be on this podcast. Absolutely. That was the whole reason why I flew down to Colorado Springs from Alaska. Yeah. So what does bring you in town? So I'm a physician in Alaska, and we are required to do continuing medical education. And I'm here for my annual conference for my specialty that's held at the Broadmoor. Yeah. Would you care to share what that specialty is? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of a mouthful. My specialty is technically osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine, Mm -hmm. or ONMM, which sounds a little more fun and like candy. Um, But what I do on a daily basis is I treat people with my hands. So I'm trained as a physician, and I treat mostly pain. Um, Most people come into my office with some sort of pain, whether it's headaches, plantar fasciitis, foot pain, back pain, neck pain. Uh, I treat lots of other different things like digestive issues. Um, I treat babies, treat pregnant women, basically anything from birth to on your deathbed. I can (laughs) try to help change how your body is working to work more more fully for you. So it's mostly pain, but we work with lifestyle changes and how to improve your overall quality of life. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit, and we will certainly talk about it because obviously in the show we talk about professional development, and that falls in line, especially as you have a very specific medical practice and you're out here to hone your craft and to pass on the craft of others, which is well in line with what we're talking about. But I'd like to start with how you found this field. Yeah, so when I first went to medical school, I thought I wanted to be an OBGYN. So Mm -hmm. I grew up hearing stories of my grandfather, and he delivered a lot of babies in Fairbanks, Alaska back in the day. And I said, I want to do that. I want to deliver babies and be a part of that really cool um, start of life. And when I entered medical school, I realized quickly that the lifestyle of an OBGYN wasn't really for me. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe family medicine. And then And so the first two years of medical school are mainly lecture-based didactics, um, having people talk at you and shove a bunch of stuff into your brain. Then the second two years are clinical, where you're out in offices, in hospitals, learning about what each specialty is. Yeah. And in my third year, I had a mentor that I spent a lot of time with that did mainly osteopathic manipulation. And it sounds super weird and corny when I say this to people, but it was one of those things where I woke up one day and was like, this is what I have to do. And then I immediately had a panic attack because <laughs> that's not how I what I had planned for my future. Um, but everything lined up really nicely and I ended up at a great specialty training program and I absolutely love my job and I love going to work every single day. 
So it's interesting that you talk about kind of an aha moment. You woke up one day and just realized this is what you want to do. Mm -hmm. There were some leading up events to that. So in the two weeks leading up to that aha moment, I had had some really great experiences with patients that I had been helping treat in this uh, with this osteopathic manipulation. And I'd also had uh, been invited to attend a dinner party that was a very eclectic group of physicians and other medical practitioners. There was a general surgeon, there was an OBGYN, a midwife, a naturopath, a chiropractor, and then me as this random medical student. Yeah. <laughs> it was a really, really awesome night. Um, so I feel like the culmination of all those things was sort of like, this is the right path for me. Yeah. So you had a great experience connecting with other professionals in the field, mm -hmm. even as a, a young and Mm -hmm. young and me medical student and you're meeting with all these people that are well crafted in their field and you had this epiphany did you do anything to say to test to see if this truly was an epiphany or if it was just maybe something you had bad for dinner Abs last night absolutely so yeah uh i actually when i went to talk to some other physicians that i would have been working with they were like no this is probably you're not going to make money you're not going to be able to do this this isn't a great idea you really still need to go into a, a different specialty and then maybe do this so with that kind of being bombarded into my brain i decided to apply to both a family medicine residency program which is what you do after medical school to specialize as well as an osteopathic manipulation mm -hmm. and so Part of the interview process is you go and spend some time at the programs you apply to. And when I had spent time at one of the family medicine programs, it was in the middle of that that I was like, yeah, no, this is not for me. It's definitely osteopathic manipulation. And so what sort of things were you resonating with when you're at the family medicine? Because obviously there sounds to be a lot of um, a lot of parallel to what you're talking about, that you, hey, you have a family history of delivering babies. It's very akin with the type of life you want to lead. What were you looking for that reconfirmed that you were on the right path. What I had enjoyed about my time spending time with other physicians that did osteopathic manipulation only was the lifestyle satisfaction. That's huge. You know, I think it's important to really enjoy what you're doing day in and day out mm -hmm. and also the patient satisfaction. So patients leave the office more often than not when you're in an osteopathic manipulation practice feeling better than when you left as opposed to when you're in a primary care specialty and don't get me wrong, I love my primary care people out there and it's a fantastic specialty and very noble. Um, but I was not always as satisfied leaving the office at the end of the day and was always a lot more frustrated, was feeling like I was going to be geared more towards burnout mm -hmm. um, in that kind of a specialty because it's sort of here, take this medication and maybe it will help you feel better here. Try this. And there's it doesn't seem to be it's harder to get patient compliance um, and and good patient outcomes. Um, and I was seeing more of that come to fruition in the specialty. In osteopathic? In the osteopathic field. manipulation clinics that I was working in. So um, a lot of it was personal joy and satisfaction, but also that some of that coming from seeing my patients leaving, feeling better, and with joy on their face that something was actually done and changed that day. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, even I can see kind of you resonating, even lighting up just talking about it. Yeah. I Like I said, I absolutely love what I do. I love going to work every day. I mean, there are some days are harder than others, but I absolutely love my patients and love my job. Yeah. So we heard two things, which was one, the, the lifestyle, which would you relate to work-life balance? Absolutely. Yeah. And then 
And then the second part was uh, patient satisfaction. So before we go down both of those uh, rabbit trails, so to speak, when someone has never heard of osteopathic manipulation, you took a first stab at it saying, hey, I, I put hands on and heal people. If you are explaining to a new patient what exactly you do, how do you how do you present it? Yeah. So I tell my patients that I'm like a mechanic of the body. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can think of a mechanic as really is going under the hood and that would, I would akin that more to like a surgeon, but I'm a mechanic looking more from the outside in. So mm-hmm. I'm looking, how are you moving in space? How is your body functioning from the musculoskeletal system? And how does, how is that affecting you from the outside in? Yeah. Which is why we don't just treat pain and we treat things that are happening on the inside of your body because our bodies are very smart, but they're so smart they're dumb sometimes. <laughs> and so we try to help the body figure out what's going on with that crosstalk and um, do that from sort of a, me- a mechanical standpoint. How can I make somebody move better in space? And then that translates to their bodies functioning better. Yeah. As, as someone who has suffered from lower back pain, I can tell you that the the hip bone is connected to the leg bone right? <laughs> because I didn't even know that there was a wrong way to brush your teeth when you have lower sciatic back pain. I didn't know all those things were connected, right. um, but thanks for clarifying for that. So when we talk about lifestyle or work-life balance, how do you know what healthy lifestyle is for a physician as you were becoming one? So healthy lifestyle as a physician is knowing what makes you happy and what grounds you. And knowing the things that you need, having the awareness of how your body is functioning. So how much sleep are you getting, which at certain levels of your training is partly out of your control, (laughs) but having the awareness of what am I putting into my body? How much sleep am I getting? How much time am I spending doing the things I enjoy outside of my training and outside of medicine? And I think the best teachers said that to me very early in my career. So I focused on a lot of those things early and then finding a specialty or a job uh, or even a position in a place of work that helps align all of those things for you. Mm -hmm. So when your teachers are explaining to you that, hey, things like sleep is very important, is that something commonly it may be common knowledge, but is it common practice in the medical field? I would say it's not very common practice in my experience. I went into medical school knowing that I am not a functional human without so many hours of sleep. So it yeah. was always a priority. But watching my colleagues both in medical school and residency, um, they don't always practice that way. And some of it is out of your control. Some of it you have these hours that you are in a hospital trying to do your best to keep people alive. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that does mean you have to have a little bit less sleep because you are dedicating that time to your patients. So being able to practice what you preach and take care of yourself ultimately enables you to take care of patients better, but it's it's very difficult in the way our system is set up right now. Yeah, I, I love that. So you said that being able to take care of yourself actually enables you to take care of patients better. Mm-hmm. So if that is uh, probably a resident, if I asked most doctors or any medical professional, they'd all obviously all agree with that. But what most people, I would say the public take as an image of what a physician does is, you know, 12 hour back to back shifts on ER or now it's what Chicago Hope and right. Grey's Anatomy. And so where is reality. So there now is, that you're out of school, sorry. <laughs> absolutely. So there's some reality that's still, and it's kind of a cultural shift that's changing slowly, I think, with my generation that's being trained. And historically, 
physicians essentially lived in the hospital. They were mm-hmm. called residents when you were in training still because you were a resident of the hospital. You actually slept there, ate there, showered there. And that's, you know, we're talking about decades ago. Yeah. But that's kind of where that term came from. And so that's where a lot of the people that are currently teaching us, that's what they grew up in. And so sometimes there's still that expectation that we should be doing that as people that are still in training. And then also when we get out into practice. But now with all the research and the understanding of this lifestyle balance, helping us take better care of ourselves to create better health outcomes for our patients, it is shifting, but it's a process. It's not something that you can just snap your fingers and say, okay, now you can work only 12 hours and that's it. It's something that's taking time, but it is. it has been changing since I started my training. Yeah. And even working 12 hours, uh, a 12-hour shift would be not fathomable for most people that work in an office job and a nine to five. So what is driving these changes? I think that the, the research is driving that. So it's, there's proof of how your brain functions on little sleep and also just how the residents and the people that are in training are driving it as well by um, talking about work, talking about these things, really these types mm-hmm. of com- just having these conversations is what's helping drive the change. 12 hour shifts, I think or there's something that's always going to be there. That's actually pretty standard in medicine. You know, nurses work 12 hour shifts in the hospital. And so in that type of a setting, um, but it's more of these 24 hour, 36 hour shifts. Those are the ones that are, that are the, really the sleep deprivation that are, that are causing bad outcomes that we're culturally shifting away from. Yeah. So in an ideal world, how would you like to see the system set up? Oh, wow. Um, I think that giving people their choice on how they how their schedules are set, really, because everybody functions differently. Mm-hmm. Some people function fantastically on the night shift, and that's where they are optimally um, being able to use their brains and their bodies. Uh, other people, I myself, I cannot. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. that, that's something that I am not a night person, and I struggled with that when I had to do that in my training. You mean you, you did what you had to do, but I think in an ideal world, you would be able to set your own schedule in, within the parameters of what the what the hospital's needs are. Um, but there's something to also be said about the continuity and, and how you see patients. So that's why I think the 12-hour system is something that is appropriate and will probably stay. Um, but being able to have sort of some autonomy, I think that's really the key thing is the autonomy. Yeah. And when you mention continuity of care, you're talking about if you were to see someone in the morning and they had procedures done and maybe you know whatever else is going on, you could still be there later in the evening before they retire go to bed yeah that's part of it so that's that's standard in the in the hospital but then seeing them you know day after day so if there's Mm -hmm. a new physician every single day or new provider every single day that's not going to be great because you don't necessarily know what happened the day before um or what the goals were that were discussed with the family and the patient so it's also having that continuity continuity over the that single shift but also over multiple days yeah. And so when you're thinking about your day to day at the the hospital or facility that you work at now, how do you keep good balance? So I have so I'm mainly an outpatient. So I yeah. work mainly in an office setting. I do see patients in the hospital on a consult basis, but my balance is created by having um, set patient 
times. So if I have a patient that I think needs a little bit of extra time, then Mm -hmm. I actually have a flag in their chart that says I need two patient slots for this one patient. Mm. So that helps me uh, provide appropriate care for the people that need, that are a little more complicated, need a little more. I will say this is unique. Mm -hmm. This is sort of in my I'm lucky in that respect from my office that this is not something that every physician would have the luxury to do. Um, depends on if you're private or if you're in a system that tells you you have to see this many patients a day. But I'm having that autonomy allows me to have that balance, um, taking time to decompress in the middle of the day mm-hmm. and then being able to go home at a reasonable hour. Um, those are the things where I find balance during my during my work day. I try not I try not to spend a lot of time after I'm done with my patients at the office so that I can go clear my head, decompress, especially in Alaska when there's no daylight in the winter. It's nice to just be able to leave and spend some time doing something else. Yeah, I think there were movies about that, right? Yeah, 30 <laughs> days a <of> night. <laughs> uh, so when you talk about decompression, what does that actually look like for you? For me, decompression is going to be taking my two dogs for a walk. I have a German Shepherd and a Black Lab. So taking them for a walk, spending time with my dad. Most even, My dad lives about 100 yards from my office, so I get to walk over and see him most days. And then for me, also um, cooking and baking is another huge decompressive thing for me. So things that doing things that I enjoy that make me feel happy. Yeah. Do you feel that you have a good handle of decompression right now? I think I do. Yep, absolutely. Awesome. So the other side you started talking about is the the patient connection. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of interesting. We we started with work-life balance. And of course, when someone doesn't have work-life balance, they're like, I just need to take a couple days off. But in the medical field, when you're having a Monday's Monday, that can impact the care of patients. And I think the dynamic is a little bit different. So to to kick this conversation off, can you talk a little bit about how you navigate when, if you're just not feeling it that day, that could literally impact the outcome of someone's medical treatment? So how do you, how do you work through all that? Absolutely. So I think something that is, it's not formally trained as far as what I went through, but I think there's a level of acting that kind of happens with, um, with being a physician where you really have to put on a face of I'm happy to be here. Like I said, mm-hmm. I'm fortunate where I'm most days I do walk into my day happy to be there, but I can probably speak for most medical providers that some days you look at your list of patients and say, this one's going to be a rough one. This is going to be a rough day for me mentally. So you have to kind of hold on to the things, uh, and have small things throughout your day that you can do for yourself to try to either decompress after a patient. So if I say, say I do have a patient that is difficult for me and that I feel kind of more exhausted or run down after I see them, I have things that I do. I have a chocolate drawer in my desk <laughs> that everyone in my office knows about. So I've got my little chocolates that are like my little pick-me-ups and then certain teas that I like to drink. So if I have a patient like that, I will go and take a second and make myself a nice cup of tea, which sounds it sounds super small, but it's having small things like that um, that you can do right after a patient that is a little bit more difficult to just take a second, take a breath and allow yourself to kind of reset because there are instances where you'll have a patient where you have to give them bad news on a bad diagnosis Mm -hmm. 
And then you have to turn right around and less than five minutes later, go talk to somebody who is pregnant and or just delivered a baby and has a super joyous thing. So you have to be able to flip this switch. And that's what I meant when I said that there's something there's some level of acting, so to speak, that has to happen where you just have to be able to just wipe your face and suddenly put on a smile. And even though something devastating just happened. Um, And that's, again, something I was not formally trained in, but just kind of has happened over time with watching mentors. So obviously the most important question is what kind of chocolate and what kind of tea? Oh, so I usually have Snickers <laughs> in my desk. <laughs> Pretty much always have Snickers and I'll rotate with some other things too. And then uh, I really like my Earl Grey tea. Earl Grey tea? Yeah. It's a favorite of John Luke Picard, so it works for me as there well. There you go. That's <laughs> great. Bergamot. Okay. The second most important question, how can I tell when my doctor is acting? I think it, it varies. <laughs> I think that I... If the good ones, you won't be able to tell. Yeah. <laughs> you won't be able to tell that they just came out of, an, of another room and either had something joyous that they're now trying to tone down or had something. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I probably have a tell that I just don't know about. Yeah. Do you do you play cards or anything like that? Uh, I, I'm not good at cards. I can say that for <laughs> sure. Like if it was poker or something like that. No, I, I'm pretty sure I would have a pretty easy tell if there, if that was the case. So when you think about acting and this kind of ping pong back and forth, is that sustainable? No, <laughs> it's exhausting. Yeah. So like I said, when you have days where there's a, a lot of patients that can be either back to back difficult or kind of emotionally hard on you, um, or they're kind of staggered throughout your day that it wears you down. And those are the days where you are a lot more mentally exhausted at the end of the day. Um, and you have to really focus on those things that do make you happy. And again, going back to that self-care at the end of the day, and if you're not doing stuff like that, those days just compound. Yeah. It's very interesting that you said, Hey, I just find these small moments with the Snickers with Earl Grey tea, because a lot of us look for, you know, this, uh, this big life hack or like what the secret magic wand is when sometimes it really is just taking a small moment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's something that more people need to find for themselves. What are the small things that you can incorporate? Because a lot of us have just busy, busy, go, go, go lives. So having just anything small like that, um, a text message just to somebody, I don't know, stuff like that. Yeah. And so do the small things add up to something big? I think so. I see them make a difference in my day. Again, if I, I, I might have one Snickers, I might have five. But <laughs> a five I will, Snickers day is the... the yep, those yeah. are pretty rough and those will be back to back. But I will I will notice myself. It could just be the sugar, but it could also. But I think that there is a, sort of a mental stimulus that happens like, okay, I'm ready. I feel a little revamped. I can go continue on with my day. Okay. So in this practice, in this field of osteopathic manipulation, you discussed that you saw better outcomes with a patient versus the, you know, the IT method. Did you try unplugging and plugging it? Do you take this prescription and let me know? So what is it that you're seeing in patients with specifically your work that doesn't seem to, um, that didn't gravitate in other fields for you? So... I think there's still something to be said and there's still appropriate um, applications for having the, you know, take the medications, do this. But I think it's the having something done immediately right here, right now, mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe this will make a change sometime later today or in the next couple of days, the next couple of months. Having, having people have walk in feeling one way and being able to walk out more often than not feeling very different than when they walked into my office, that is pretty powerful. Yeah. 
And so how do you explain or present this modality of treatment when maybe people are saying, well, just just write me the prescription? Right. And that does happen. There are people that show up and say and do give you the cues that they are mainly looking for that. But I basically explain that that's just a Band-Aid. You know, mm-hmm. especially in the pain world, if we're going to focus mainly on that from my standpoint, since it's the majority of what I do, is that most of our pain medications are just Band-Aids. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to fix this so that that is not even necessary anymore. I'm trying to make your body better and actually fix what the cause is of why you're feeling this way. Yeah. Can you give an example of what a standard kind of uh, treatment would be and how your intervention would look a little bit different from that? Absolutely. So we'll just go with low back pain since that's one of the most common things that comes into my office. Um, and in Alaska, we get a lot of people that work um, that are like drivers. So mm-hmm. ice road truckers will use that example sure, because <laughs> I think feel like a lot of people can resonate with that. So having a having a job where you're in a um, sitting down all day driving 12 hours or, you know, sounds like most office jobs as well. Right. So then developing back pain slowly over time. So people have tried over-the-counter medications and frequently coming in wanting something more powerful, what can get rid of my pain right here, right now? Yeah, we have some medications that will make you, um, that might make you feel better, but it also, it's more that it just makes you not care about your pain. So what will happen in my visit is that first we'll start with a neurological exam, make sure there's actually nothing potentially scary going on in the back that I need to be worried about. Mm -hmm. Um, A part of our philosophy overall is trying to limit intervention. So trying to limit how much um, we're ordering extra tests like x-rays or MRIs or or medications or lab lab tests. So if someone does have a, a normal exam without any red flags, then the next step would, osteopathic manipulation is basically using my hands. So I tell my patients, I'm going to use my hands. I'm going to feel how your joints move, feel how your muscles move. So depending if it's low back pain, I'm going to feel how basically starting at the ankle, how is the ankle moving? How is the knee moving up to the pelvis and the tailbone or the sacrum and then the low back and work up any higher if I have to. And basically I move things around and that's kind of a lot of what it feels like for patients is I'm just like poking and wiggling and moving things around. Um, but then I do very anywhere ranging from very gentle techniques that don't really feel like I'm doing much to I also do some very aggressive techniques that can be pretty painful. Mm-hmm. I just base every visit on what I'm feeling in the patient's body and what seems appropriate for that visit and what they can tolerate. Um, and basically all of those techniques are geared towards making the body move better, whether it's the connective tissue or a specific joint or a specific muscle. And so once you get those things to move better, the body goes, oh, okay, this is what normal is. And then that can translate to feeling better generally pretty quickly, sometimes within a couple of days. Yeah. So how does this differ from maybe physical therapy, from massage therapy? Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know which doctor voodoo right, kind right. of stuff. That's a very common question. And then also what's the difference between us and chiropractors. So that's yeah. probably the most common question. Um, so I actually have patients that utilize all of those things, and I think everything has their place. So the difference is 
in general, you know, there's definitely variation in osteopathic physicians, in physical therapists, and in chiropractors in general. We're looking at how the whole body is functioning and moving. Physical therapists might be looking more at strength and can we do some exercises to help do strengthening. They might address the tissue in a different way um, using other modalities that we're not trained in. And so I OMM osteopathic manipulation and physical therapy are generally work very synergistically together is what I tell my patients. Um, and then chiropractors in general look at just the spine is their training. There's many fantastic chiropractors out there and ones that have expanded to um, more than just the spine, but we're looking at not just the spine, but the muscles and the connective tissue and everything out to the tips of your toes and your fingers and the top of your head. So every single tissue in the body is what we're looking at. And so when you kind of talked about coming out here um, to to do continual education, what does that look like for someone that does this specific type of of medical treatment? So we're constantly trying to see what else, what other new techniques are out there. What is, has somebody come up with something new and exciting? What's the research? And because the one of the hard things that people have a hard time wrapping themselves around and why osteopathic manipulation isn't at the major forefront of everything is because there's not a lot of research on it. There is research out there, but it's really hard to um, to create a control when you're actually putting your hands on somebody and moving things around, you can't really do a good control of that. There's mm-hmm. also a lot of not a, not a lot of money for things like osteopathic manipulation, like there are for medications. So coming to conferences like this, you see how, what are people doing to contribute to research in novel ways. What are what are re- what's happening in the research in terms of the mechanics of the body that newer things that we don't know about. So we're just, just learning learning everything and anything about the body and uh, that those are some of the kind of talks that I've been listening to the last couple days is new ideas and how the connective tissue works and body mechanics and how joints are working differently than we've thought of before and then just again newer techniques that I can add to my repertoire I want to have as big of a tool belt as possible and all of those meaning just with using my hands which I think is fun yeah so what sort of things are you seeing on the forefront that really excites you um, one of the biggest things that's on the forefront is actually something that, that I'm involved in a little bit and it's, uh, and fascia is one of the, is one of the newer things in, in medicine in general, really, that is at the forefront of a lot of research. So I tell people that really for the past couple thousand years, anatomists have been, when we dissect um, to learn about the body, we get rid of the fascia to get to the good stuff, to get to the lungs and the muscles and the organs. And now over the last decade or two, people are like, wait, what is this stuff that we've just been brushing aside for thousands of years? This is actually really important. So there's a lot of really cool new information about fascia and fascia is this connective tissue that connects our entire body. It wraps in every single cell, it wraps every single muscle. And so learning every time I come to this conference about more about that connective tissue and how what I'm doing is influencing it on a daily basis and how it's relating to chronic pain, since that's what I deal with on a pretty regular basis. Yeah. And so for the non-medical 
medical students and uh, professionals at home, how would you explain where fascia is on the body? Yeah. So the the most common thing that I use to explain is most people have seen a chicken breast. Even if mm-hmm. people are vegan or vegetarian, I feel like most people have seen at least a chicken breast. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a skinless chicken breast, there's still some silvery white stuff on the outside of it. And like, yeah, the, there's chunks of fat that are like the gristle, but this is just the silvery stuff. Or when you peel an orange, the white stuff, that's fascia. And so it's under our skin. So if we just cut back on our skin, that's the white stuff, but then it integrates into every single cell on our body. And I explain that it's like a mesh. It's like a saran wrap mesh that holds our body together and is involved in every single movement that we do from the inside and the outside. So as medical science is looking a little bit differently at fascia, what is it that you're hoping to gain from these insights as they are progressing your craft? How we can influence this from our standpoint and how can we take care of our fascia better since it is so integrated in how our body functions on every single level because I would ideally love to be bored. I would love it if my job was not seeing people on a regular basis for chronic pain, but they're, I, people are functioning so great, but they go out and sprain their ankle because they were climbing a mountain and then like they come in and do stuff like that. So my hope is that the research on fascia can help us as medical providers, but also help patients, just every day-to-day people figure out how to take care of their bodies even better so that they don't have to be seen as frequently as they do. Yeah. And so does this impact the way that you uh, develop yourself or the way that you take care of your own body? Absolutely. I try to practice what I preach. I am human, but I definitely try to practice what I preach. Wait, what? Right? I know. what? I know. (laughs) So I... I try to practice what I preach in terms of everything that I tell my patients I'm trying to do. So trying to stay hydrated because fascia is a very fluid organ. And so if we're dehydrated, our fascia is going to be more more prone to injury. Um, Working on things like the mechanics of how I'm moving in space, my posture, um, what I'm putting into my body. So things that we all kind of already are hearing on a regular basis, but finding out more and more how impactful it actually is on our health and how we move every day. Yeah. And you talked a lot about this is not going to be something that can be funded because how do you patent pressing on someone's thigh? Right. And we, we kind of had this conversation um, a, a few days ago about things like breathing exercises and fasting. You can't really trademark those. So how do you see your field as you are a part of the bleeding edge? How is it going to progress? How is it going to keep going? I think that as we see more and more positive outcomes from what from what we're doing in our offices, I think that that's going to bring it more to the forefront. People are going to be like, okay, this there is something to this. Let's figure out some other ways that we can research it. Um, and with the opioid crisis, really – I think everyone is looking towards more holistic ways to approach how um, how we're treating pain. And this is a pretty ultimate way of how to treat things holistically without getting people on medications and getting actually getting people off medications. I've had I can count several people on my hands just off the top of my head that chronic pain medications for years that I've been able to get off just with what I do in my office. Wow. Yeah. So I think in a lot of professionals in any sort of industry deal with information overload. And so when you are kind of in this environment where you can't really A-B test in the standard way, 
But obviously, as someone who takes very seriously their profession and how they're interacting, how do you separate fact from fiction, anecdotal evidence from things that you can actually use on patients? Right. So a lot of it is finding things that are research backed, which sounds kind of counterintuitive since there's not a lot of research about what I do. But when I'm when I have patients come in with what about this thing that I can put into my body? What about this? I I do go for things that are more evidence based or come from sources that are shown to be reliable in the medical community. Yeah. Interesting. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. It has been. Yeah. So anything else you'd like to add for other professionals, even if they're not in the medical field, when they are developing themselves, dealing with a lot of things that you're talking about, what sort of advice would you give them? Really, it's just stay true to yourself. Something that I think of when you ask this question is I had a medical student a couple weeks ago tell me she's interested in doing doing manipulation, but also wants to be a surgeon, which can be kind of a counterintuitive um uh, specialties together. What I, what I tell people is things that you, that make you happy, that drive you write a letter to yourself, like right now in your life. And like, what are my goals? What, where do I want, where do I see myself? And then as you move along your career, your training, you can kind of reflect back on that. And cause burnout happens in a lot of different specialties and you can kind of get into the day-to-day grind and you can set yourself an alarm or something a year or two from now and say, go back and find that thing that you wrote to yourself and remind and be like, Hey, this is how I was when I was like bright eyed and bushy tailed and excited about this path that I'm on. Mm-hmm. Where am I now? Like just checking in with yourself. And that's something that one of my professors in medical school said in the first week of school, and I didn't do that for myself, like write a letter to yourself, say how it feels to be in your first week of medical school. That way, when you're getting burned out, you can reflect on that. And I didn't do that. And I wish I had in residency. I did. And it was really fun to look back and see like, yeah, I am making my way towards these goals. And here's some things that I can do to try to head in that direction. Or do I need to reflect on something new now? So outside of those little thing, day-to-day things, I think that's something that can kind of help keep people on track long-term. Very interesting. And how many letters have you written to yourself since? Just one. Just the one. Okay. So just Jen, where can people find out more about you and more about your work? So I have a couple of different places. So I work at uh, in Fairbanks, Alaska at uh, Foundation Health Partners. And so that's something, a place you can find me. I also teach uh, across the country and that is through the American Fashion Distortion Model Association. So that would be www.afdma.com. And so there's some a place that you can find me, track me down, email me, ask me any questions. I love talking to people about what I do and what their passions are and try to help people get where they want to go. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. And we will put a link to those in the show notes. And until next time. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information on Hawthorne Union, you can go to www.hawthorneunion.com or reach us at info at hawthorneunion.com.